Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah in chapter number four this evening. The book of Jonah in chapter number four. If you'll head toward the middle of the Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. And then from there, work your way toward the New Testament. And there's a little book hidden right in the middle of all of those prophets. And its name is Jonah. Jonah chapter four. And we're going to begin reading in verse number five. The book of Jonah chapter four. And verse number five, and if you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word? The book of Jonah, chapter four, verse five. So Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. And so Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. If you mark in your Bibles, you should mark that phrase in verse number six. He was exceeding glad for the gourd but god prepared a worm and when the morning arose the next day it smote the gourd and it withered and it came to pass that when the sun did arise that god prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of jonah that he fainted and he wished in himself to die and said It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he, that's Jonah, and Jonah said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. And then the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou didst not labor, and neither, made it, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein there are more than six score thousand persons, a hundred and twenty thousand people, which cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word tonight in our lives. Father, as we consider what our responsibility individually, what our responsibility corporately as a church is toward the cause of evangelizing the world. Father, as we consider our own responsibilities, I pray that you would help us, Father, to realize what it is, Father, that brings you joy, Father, what it is that brings you gladness, Father, what it is that you show love toward, Father, and I pray that 
our joy, our gladness, and our love would reflect those things which you love, which bring you joy, which bring you gladness. Father, may that not just reside and abide in our heart, but may it also, Father, show itself in the way that we uh, handle, Father, the resources you entrust to us, Father, the way we uh, interact with our neighbors, the things that we do and say at work, Father, even the way that we take an interest in providing uh, resources for these men and women to leave the comforts of their home and to travel to regions far beyond this place and to give the gospel. Father, I pray that you would motivate our hearts that way. And in your son's name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. There's an estimated 17,000 people groups on the planet. And God deserves praise and glory from every single people group on the planet today. There is coming a day, and I believe soon coming a day, in which all people, in all places, in all tongues, in all languages, from all tribes, will with one voice make their praise and glory known unto God. The Bible teaches us that everyone will bow the knee and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and I believe that day is quickly coming. Thousands of these people groups have yet to have any gospel witness whatsoever. Hundreds of these people groups have not been reached sufficiently for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hundreds of millions of men and women who are lost in their trespass and sin have never heard of the saving grace of God Almighty. They are in the similar position that the city of Nineveh finds itself in in our text. Three things then, you have an outline, you can follow along with us. We notice first this strategic place. God says in verse 11, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, you know, over and over and over and over again, God says to this prophet Jonah, I want you to go to this city, go to this great, big, huge, dangerous city, and I want you to declare my saving grace to them. I'm not going to rehearse it tonight. You already know the city of Nineveh was full of people who were vicious and mean and cruel and indifferent. They were persecutors of the truth. They were those who had turned their anger toward the Israelite people. And God said to this man, to this prophet, it is to that people in that place, in that great city, that I want you to proclaim my saving grace. This is what God is saying to Jonah, and this is what God is saying to you and to me. If you want to love what I love, well, I love people. Amen. Of all kinds of shapes, 
and all kinds of sizes and all kinds of tongues and all kinds of languages and all kinds of backgrounds. I love people, Jonah. And if you want to love what I love, you must learn to love the people who have been created in my image. It was that great theologian, Dr. Seuss, who summarized it best when he said, a person is a person no matter how small. And here Jonah, because of his national prejudice toward these Ninevite people, rebel against what God has asked him to do. But God, through this man, is teaching you and teaching me something very, very important. That there is nothing more amazing. That there is nothing more beautiful. That there is nothing more astounding. That there is nothing more precious to God than the people that have been made in the image of God. And you look at a city chock full of people. And you ask yourself, what is it that God loves? And God loves subway cars packed shoulder to shoulder with the most beautiful thing on the earth, people. God loves city blocks crammed full with the most beautiful thing on the earth, and that is people. Just 40 years ago, less than 3% of the world's population lived in what they qualify as a city. Today, it's estimated that 8 million people make a move to the city every two months. If you want to see what God loves, we have some pictures for you. you want to see what God loves? God loves things like this. One point four billion people. God loves things like this. 127 million people. You see, you and I see city sidewalks and escalators and subways and city streets with full of people. And we go, oh my goodness, way too many people. This is too many people for me. And God looks down and he sees city sidewalks and city streets and neighborhoods and subway cars and traffic intersections. And God says, that is the kind of thing that I love. God loves things like this. South Korea, 51 million people. It's places like this over and over and over again that God loves. In New York City, 8.5 million people. Just wrap your mind around that for a second. And we see a bus full of people. We think, oh, that's not beautiful. That's awful. I'll wait for the next bus. You know why we think that? Because our hearts don't work like God's heart works. We look at the cities and we see masses and masses and masses of people. And we go, oh, there's no way I am, I am even remotely attracted to that. But God looks at the cities full of, of millions and millions and millions of people. And he says, why are you not moved by the thing that moves me? Think of this the next time you're sitting bumper to bumper in traffic on the 405 and the 710. Traffic equals people. I was going through a study in the book of, 
of Jonah when I received a phone call from Brother Aggie to come and, and visit First Baptist Church. I landed, the plane landed, my family and I stepped off the plane. We rented a car downtown Los Angeles. We took a, a bus full of people over to the rental car place. We got in the car and we started it up and I opened up my Google Maps app on Thursday at 4.30 to see how long it would take me to get from LAX to First Baptist Church Long Beach, which is right around seven miles, just so you know. An hour and 45 minutes in nothing but red lines. I took a screenshot of that. And I sent it to one of my counselors while I was weighing this decision. And I said, I think I have my answer. It was nothing but red lines. I mean, red line going this way, red line coming that way, red line going underneath the red lines. It was more red lines than I've ever seen in my life. I took a screenshot and sent it to my counselor. I said, I think I have my answer. Brother Pope texted me back this exact phrase, traffic equals people. And we see traffic and we, man, we, we revolt. We see rooms and, and city sidewalks full of people. And we shrink back. We see city intersections crammed with people. And we go, man, there's no way. I need like open spaces and ranges and plains and trees and flowers and oceans. God sees people and he says, that is what I love. That Christians ought to be everywhere where there are people. If you love what God loves, God loves people. Sitting in my hotel room, actually, I believe that it was in the Eggie's house. I was sitting in my hotel room and I was finishing up this study from Jonah chapter 4 and I read these words, and should I not spare Nineveh, that great city? It's a strategic place. Why is it a strategic place? Because it is a great city full of 120,000 people who cannot discern their left hand from their right hand. And God is making a point. He's, he's qualifying a group of people. Jonah is saying, I don't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh is full of evil, malicious, uh, hateful, mean, vicious people who've done awful, atrocious deeds to my people. And I don't want to go there and preach your saving grace to them because I know the kind of God you are. You are a patient, gracious God who will show mercy to them. And I don't want to preach to them because they've done bad things. And God God says to Jonah, should I not spare that great city? Because in that great city there are 120,000 who cannot discern from their right hand to their left hand. And then it's an interesting phrase of how he ends it, doesn't it? There's 120,000 who cannot discern their left from their right, but there's also much cattle. Isn't that a weird way to add that? There's a whole lot of people in that city and there are some pets. Seems like, think about a weird thing to say, doesn't it? Except God is qualifying a group of people in saying that, isn't it? 
God is saying, yes, there are mean and vicious and cruel people in that city. Yes, there are people in that city who have done things that have that has come up before me so that their wickedness is come up before me. That's how the chapter or rather the book starts. But God in his great mercy is willing for a time to show grace, to show mercy, to show patience, to show long suffering and kindness, because this is the kind of God we have, that there are 120 people in my 120 thousand people, in my opinion, speaking of the boys and girls in that city, there's 120,000 boys and girls in that city who have yet to hear of my good love and my deep abiding grace and my long suffering and my mercy. Is number two, a salvation procured? You contrast the beginning part of the book their wickedness has come up before me with the end of this book. Chapter number four, look what Jonah says about God. Look at verse number two. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. But Jonah knew God well, didn't he? God told Jonah to go against that city and denounce their violence and their injustices. Jonah preaches the shortest sermon ever recorded. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The entire city of Nineveh then repents. Repent, Nineveh, you're wicked, you're evil, you're unjust, you're violent, and my God shall overthrow you if you do not repent. The people of Nineveh hear that message, they turn, they repent, and God spares them. But how or why? How does God spare a people? How does God show mercy and grace? Well, really, it's seen in Jonah's opposite, isn't it? Jonah goes outside of the city to condemn the city. Jonah goes outside of the city and he finds himself a hill where he can look down onto the city and he can hope bad things begin to happen inside of the city. Jonah is a prophet who goes out of the city to condemn the city. But there is another prophet who comes thousands of years after Jonah who goes out of the city not to condemn the city, but he goes out of the city that he might give his life for those in that city. We read about him in Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 12. Wherefore also Jesus suffered that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, and he suffered without out the gate. Why did Jesus suffer? That he might sanctify the people with his own blood. That's why he suffered. Jonah goes out of the city to spare his own life and to condemn those who are left in the city. Jesus was drugged outside of the city and there, outside of the city on the hill called Calvary, Jesus gave up the ghost. He laid down his life and he finished salvation's great plan. Jesus accomplished his purpose, his mission, for which he came to seek and to save those which were lost. And Jesus went to the cross not to simply endure the penalty of sin. Jesus went to the cross to stand in the place of sinners. This is teaching us something about the character and the nature of our God. God loves Nineveh in spite of their violence, and God loves Jonah in spite of his arrogance. Does God hate sin? 
Yes. You want to see just how much he hates sin? Look at the cross. Does God love sinners? Yes. You want to see how much God loves the sinner? Look at the cross. For God, through Christ, does all of this. Makes a way for salvation to be made available to sinners who deserve His wrath. For every boy, girl, man, woman who has put their faith and trust in the sacrificial death and that victorious resurrection of Christ, you have been, uh, the message has been declared over you and over me that your sins are remembered no more, according to Isaiah chapter 43. Your sins are remembered no more. Does not mean that God has simply forgotten your sin. It does not mean that God has amnesia towards your sin. No, God knows everything there is to know about you, and yet God has decided to set His love on you. And the way that God set His love on you and on me is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all who would turn from themselves and from their sin and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, the God of the universe looks at your life and mine and says, I have absolutely no record of you having done anything wrong in your entire life. You have the righteousness of my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to eternal life. And Jonah doesn't do that, does he? Jonah won't do that, will he? No, but God, God alone does that. We aren't told exactly what Jonah preaches. Chapter 3, verse number 4 tells us that Jonah preaches an eight-word sermon. Don't get your hopes up. Look at verse number 4. He entered the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'm just speaking homiletically here. He could have added a little more to the sermon, don't you think? Maybe he could have started with a joke, had an illustration. He could have worked a little harder. It's probable that this is simply a summary statement of what Jonah's sermon was. It's likely that Jonah would have explained the consequences of disobedience to God. Think of what Jonah's recent weeks and days must have looked like. He spent time in the belly of the whale. He had the smell of fish all over him. And Jonah walks into the city of Nineveh and says, if God says it, he must mean it. Turn and repent. And then we are told that all those in the city of Nineveh, that they believed God. Really, this is ultimately what defines our life, isn't it? That they have believed God. That they have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they have added to their faith knowledge and their knowledge virtue and their virtue temperance and their temperance patience. And that they have added all these things to their lives. This is ultimately what we want from these missionaries here. What is it that a missionary does? What is it that we want missionaries to do? And asking the question, what do missionaries do? I'm not speaking specifically about what do they do in their day-to-day -day lives. I'm not trying to describe all the, the particular set of circumstances that a missionary must go through throughout his routine or regular day when he's on the field. No, instead, what is it that we long for our missionaries to do? 
What is it that we want for them to do? This similar thing that Jonah did. Oh, walk into the city and cry to those in the city. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We see a model for this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, verse number 21. Many of you already know where I'm headed on this idea. Verse number four, or chapter 14, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and taught many, they returned again unto Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we through much tribulation will enter into the kingdom of God. And when, we had, and when they had ordained uh, them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting and commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after that, they passed throughout Poseidon. Well, what is it that we want our missionaries to do? We want our missionaries to make new converts. We see that in verse number 21. We want our missionaries to win the lost. We want them to share the gospel. We want, to, we want them to evangelize the areas of Japan and Uganda. We want them to go into areas of, 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 uh, of Canada and, shed, and, and share the gospel. We want them to go into Gambia. We want them to give the gospel. We want them to win souls. Those who are without Christ, we want them to come to know Christ. Those who have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ, we want them to hear the good news of Jesus Jesus Christ. This is ultimately what we want our missionaries to do, to make new converts, to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that. We want them to make new communities as seen in verse number 23, that they appoint elders, men that they're setting up and structuring, planting new churches, training and discipling national pastors so that those churches that they plant, so that those men and women who they reach can also become missionaries, sending churches, pastors, supporting churches. This is what we want. We want, our, we want our missionaries to win souls and to plant church, churches and to train nationals for the work of the ministry, not so they can become big and luxurious like the American churches. No, so that they can send missionaries all over their part of the world as well. We want new converts. We want new communities. We also want nurtured churches. We see this in verse number 22, the strengthening of the disciples, the encouraging of those that had come to faith, that they might continue in the faith. Rainer tells us that there are more than 6,000 to 10,000 churches who close their doors every year, and that's just here in the States. I want you to think about this for a second. The six to 10,000 churches close up shop every year. Why? Because everyone in America is reached? Because everyone in America knows the gospel? Because there isn't a need in those cities? Certainly that's not the case. We know better than that, don't we? No, the commission to these missionaries is nurture the churches, strengthen those that remain, that they would continue in their faith and help them to understand that they, through much tribulation, must enter into the kingdom of God. I would say this is certainly the ill for us as Americans. We don't like any tribulation. And we don't want any hard times. We don't want any difficult things. We want church our way. 
or we'll go our own way and do our own thing. Oh, that God would give us more men and women like R.R. and Catherine, that they would decide and commit themselves to replant churches. I thank God for every church planner that we've sent out through our ministry. We've sent out two new church planners through our Faith Promise family even this year. But I am committed to seeing churches that already have buildings, that already have pews, that already have books, that already have lights, to see these churches reinvigorated with the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that God would give us more men and women who would commit their lives to replant churches and strengthen those that remain. This is what we want from our missionaries. There's a salvation that's procured. There is a strategic place. It's a great city. Last one, there's a sovereign proverb. There's a sovereign priority. Notice the contrast, verse 9 with verse 10 and with verse 11. Notice what makes Jonah happy in verse number 6. Jonah gets excited about plants. You know what moves the heart of Jonah? Fall leaves. Jonah gets excited about plants. God gets excited about people. Jonah cries over plants. God cries over people. This is what God is saying to each and every one of us here. Look at what you weep over. Look at what moves you emotionally. Look at what stirs your affections. Is the thing that moves you the same thing that moves the heart of God? Is the thing that stirs your affection the same thing that stirs the love of, of our good and gracious God? Look at what you love and look what God loves. Look at what you cry over and look at what God cries over. Look at how impatient you and I can be with people and look at how patient God is with people. It teaches us about where Jonah's love flows. It also teaches us about where our own love flows. Jonah's love flows inward. In the entire book, Jonah is constantly worried about himself. Jonah is full of self-absorption. He's always weeping over his own trouble. He's always grumbling over his own problems. He's always saying, poor me, poor me, poor me. Jonah's love flows inward. God's love flows outward. God's love flows toward the unfamiliar toward the unwashed, toward the undeserving. And God looks at Jonah and says, what are you living for? What are you loving? What are you, what are you stirred about? What is it that moves your affections? What causes you to be angry? What causes you to laugh? What causes you to cry? What is it that moves you? Jonah, who are you living for? Whose glory are you living for? Whose glory are you really absorbed in? Same question can be turned on you and it can be turned on me. Who are you living for? Whose glory are you really living for? 
Whose glory are you absorbed in? Jonah cries over plants. God cries over people. Why? Because people are what matter to God. Jonah had his priorities out of whack. Your neighbor matters to God. The waiter at the restaurant matters to God. The cashier matters to God. The guy standing at the corner matters to God. If it is true that the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it is true that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for all men everywhere, and it is true, then surely this God and that message warrants more than just me and you raising our hand or saying a prayer. If the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of Christianity is true, and it is, then surely that demands more than casual church attendance. Surely the God of the Bible demands and warrants a complete and total abandonment of our own plans, of our own possessions, of our own hopes, of our own dreams, of our own lives. Oh, that we would lay everything we have on the table and say to God, use me, use it all, and use it for your own namesake. That includes your job. That includes your car. That includes your family. That includes your church. It includes your life. God, everything I am and everything I have I lay on the table for you to use however you see fit. Indeed, if God is really who He says He is, that is the only proper response, is it not? Here I am, Lord. And my life is yours to control. Jonah cries over plants. God cries over people. Because people are what matter to God. What matters to you? What matters to me? We've said this over and over again. The success of a church is not known by its seeding capabilities. The success of a church is measured in its sending ability. It's not about how many people we can pack into this room. It's about how many people from this room will God call to go out and give out the good news of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all over the globe. Let me ask you a very pointed question this evening. Is your all on the table tonight? 
Pastor, I'm retired. Perfect. You know, Moses was 80 when God started with him. Perfect. There's no excuse. We talked about it this morning, but God is able to make all grace abound to you in everything for all good works. No excuses tonight. Are you willing to say, God, you can have it all? Use me for however you want to use me. Use my job for however you want to use my job. Use me in my neighborhood however you want to use me. God, use my life for your name's sake.